Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, uh, as you may recall, on Monday's episode, which was just two days ago, we featured musician and World War II Dutch resistant agent Frida Belenfante. And that episode, as we mentioned, was inspired by the team at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh and their amazing comic book project, Chutzpah. So today we have interviews with the people at the Holocaust Center. Holly is the person who conducted these interviews. It's with folks who worked on this comic to talk about how the project works and how they create each issue and what they're hoping readers will take away from it. And you're going to hear from three different people today. Uh, the first of those is writer Birdie Willis. She is an absolute delight, and she wrote Frida's story for the upcoming edition of Pow. And the way that she managed to get into that story is really lovely, and she's going to talk about it. Birdie, will you first tell us about who you are and your writing background a little bit? Certainly. So my name is Birdie Willis. Um, I have been working in comics for, oh, about eight years, I would say. Most of it has been self-published up until recently, um, where I was contracted to work on the most recent miniseries comic for Over the Garden Wall, which is a Cartoon Network property. Uh, And I did five issues of that. I am also currently in the process of working on two 200-page graphic novels. Unfortunately, there's an NDA on both of them, so I can't really talk much about them, as well as another graphic novel for uh, middle schoolers detailing another life of a historical person. Um, So I'm very excited about that. I was thrilled when I was approached by Marcel and asked to do uh, just write at least one story for Futspow, and then I consider myself very fortunate to have the privilege to write two, and one of them to be about Frida. Frida is amazing. She is. One thing that I noticed when we prepped our episode about her biography is that she is tricky because she's so immensely quotable, and she had such a full life, and there are so many moments to talk about and so many moments of her life that she describes in really, really picturesque detail. How did you decide on your focus to tell part of her story as a a bigger, a small element in the bigger Holocaust story? What I found that was easy to connect Frida and Frida's life was her passion for music. So I found that in incorporating different musical terminology to describe the events that happened in her life leading to her with the resistance and leaving Amsterdam and then coming to America and being part of the Orange County um, Symphonic Orchestra, that uh, it just, it was woven throughout her entire life. And what better way than to use music to describe someone who's so vibrant? That's so perfect. I know there have been a lot of times, just even working on our history show, where sometimes the material gets just a little bit too emotionally heavy and we need to step away for a little while. Uh, Do you ever find it difficult to work with such serious subject matter? Sometimes. I was trained as a history major, so that was my degree. I find I'm able to step back from the material as I don't want to create some sort of bias, but that was in my training. I think that with Frida, knowing how 
much she was sort of, uh, she just had a very lighthearted way of doing things and speaking about things that were often so serious in any of the interviews that I've seen that it was hard not to find that a little infectious and to utilize that in the best way to represent her. Yeah, she, what an incredibly upbeat person, particularly considering some of the difficult times she had. It's always startling in a wonderful way to me to to see interviews with her or to read transcripts of those interviews where she's talking about very serious and sometimes dark things, but she is oddly upbeat about it. <laughs> Have you heard the story about the viola di gamba? Yes, but we did not put it in our podcast, so tell it, please. <laughs> Okay, so she was, and I forgot the orchestra, or I've forgotten the uh, the town uh, in which she she found this paper, but she had gotten an engagement, and it was to play cello, and she had written down that she played cello, uh, viola de gamba, and piano, and when the flyer or the I suppose the article came out about what these people would be playing in uh, the orchestra. It said so-and-so violin, uh, Frida Bellinfante, cello, and viola de gamba, piano. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she found that so funny. She said uh, she wished she had saved the paper, but she did not. But she said she had a wonderful chuckle over it. And I just remember laughing very hard at uh, that interview while watching it. And I thought, oh, she is just she just has a wonderful sense of humor. I, I, she sounds like something, I, someone I would have loved to have gotten to know. A hundred percent. I had to laugh because there are so many moments in her life where she kind of mentions, and there's uh, that great interview in the documentary about her with her sister that says the same. Like her sister comments that like boys and girls were both incredibly drawn to her, and then Frida comments at various points that like she didn't ask for people to constantly be hitting on her, but they always were. But then watching her talk, I'm like, I completely understand why everyone on the planet fell in love with you when they met you. I completely get it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Here she is in her documentary saying, oh, I, I just don't know why people fell in love with me. And here are seven more women saying, oh, Frida, Frida, <laughs> Frida, Frida. She's incredibly lovable. She was. My particular favorite moment is her talking about Henriette and how she, almost out of a romance movie, goes to Henriette the very first time they meet. And Henriette is like, why are you, why do you stay? And she says, because I love you. Yeah. And she's like, and I grabbed her and I said, because I love you. And I thought, oh goodness, if that's not the most playboyish thing I've ever right. heard, what, how wonderful. Right. I was clapping and cheering just watching this documentary to the point where my wife had to come in and say, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, just watching a woman do her thing, dear. Just watching. She's, uh, she's really, I mean, like charismatic in a way that is so hard to describe because she's not a particularly, like, she's very witty and funny and, like we said, like, just great turn of phrase and so confident about who she is and her place in the world. But she's not, like, one of those big, like, look at me, showboaty people, but she's just incredibly magnetic. It's really astonishing. She really had this magnetic personality that, but also this very confident sense of self in the way she seemed to hold herself. It, I think it was the combination of the two that really drew people to her. My last question for you about 
Frida's story and about this project in general is what is your biggest wish for readers to take away from this project? When they close the comic and they walk away, what is it that you hope comes out of the pages and leaves with them? I think to understand that it is more than just stories. These are people, some people who survived the Holocaust, some people who didn't. But regardless, they are people and they are people that should be known and talked about and understood that their lives were full of meaning until until the Nazis invaded and took their took everything away. And to understand and have compassion and empathy for these people. That's so beautiful. Next up, I got to talk to Jackie Reese, who works in marketing and education for the Holocaust Center. One of the awesome things about Jackie is that she prepped a huge educator's guide for Chutzpah, and uh, Holly will talk to her about that in the course of this interview. Uh, Jackie, first of all, will you just explain to our listeners a little bit your role at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh? Sure. So I am the marketing and education associate at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, which means I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, but within the context of Chutzpah, uh, I'm obviously the person who puts out information to the world about purchasing it and where they can get it. I am also on the education side. Uh, I was the main person behind the teacher's resource guide, which is about a 150-page resource booklet that we have available for educators on how to use Chutzpah in their classroom. So it comes with a lot of context building, definitions, annotations, and five sample lesson plans. So currently it's it's designed for the first three volumes, but when we come out with volume four, I'll be working on uh, an addendum to it to keep it up to date. That resource is so fabulous. Uh, I have looked through it and it's amazing. We'll link to it in our show notes. Uh, One thing that I wanted to ask you about is that when you're dealing with the community and the public, maybe outside of education, how do you build that bridge and how do you use, for example, things like the comic, but also other resources there at the Holocaust Center to communicate some history that can be very dark but is incredibly important to share with people? Sure. Well, I know you said outside of education, but one of the things that I do also is when we do teacher trainings, I have a lesson that I run with teachers on how do we use comics in the classroom and what are the, basically we go through one of the stories in volume three, Walter Boninger's story, and there's very little text in that story. So I use it as a way to exemplify the fact that what's spoken, what's unspoken, and what is it that we're getting through imagery. And so my background is in art education and arts management. Uh, So this is like my whole sort of adult thesis, essentially, is that we can use art in ways that sometimes individual subject areas can't really cover. So the idea of using art to convey the unconveyable, to feel the unfeelable, we do a lot of arts programming here at the center. And we've noticed for certain that the exhibits and when we do art screenings and film screenings and things like that, it just reaches people in a way that no lecture or lesson or any sort of traditional learning style is going to to reach them. Uh, Hutz Pow, as you've mentioned, is about to go into its fourth volume. Uh, So you've done three already. What has response been like to those initial three? 
it's been awesome. So I came on board while they were working on volume three. And I think just within the time that I've seen volume three be out in the world, we've been getting more and more awareness. Uh, we, we've started getting orders from not just across the United States, but, but across the world. We, we've gotten orders from as far away as Australia. Uh, we've received contact from various organizations who would like to do some version of Chutzpah in their communities, both local Holocaust stories in different cities, but also other places that are doing things that where they're talking about different topics and they want to use what we call the Chutzpah model to talk about those difficult topics in a way that, that gives that information to people in a way that they can absorb it. Um, and then just people, people really respond to it. The kid, we, we have kids here all the time who like they idolize Marcel. So I'm excited. You'll get to talk to him. <laughs> He's just a hero to so many kids. And I've met so many grandparents who are like, I have to buy this for my grandkid. Like this is the best Christmas present I could get them. Um, not a plug, but plug. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, I, th- I think it's one of those things where people think of it in many ways as, as a, a youth tool, but it's something that people of all ages can actually get behind. And, and I would say just from sort of an outsider perspective, because I came in on three, just seeing the way the stories have evolved through the, the various volumes has been really incredible. So one, you know, they were laying the groundwork. Two, they were kind of pulling that together. Three was my favorite, but now that I've been reading the scripts for four, four is going to be the best one, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, and the fourth one focuses entirely on women. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what led you guys to make that decision and also just kind of how it's evolved over time? Sure. So there's a couple different thought processes behind that, one of which being every year here at the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh, we do a different theme that we sort of base our programs around. So last year was uh, Women in the Holocaust. Now, we picked that theme because men, women, children, non-binary, everybody who went through the Holocaust suffered. But women had unique ways of suffering that differ from maybe the, the male experience, just in terms of that their femininity could be used against them and could also be a tool of theirs to regain their humanity. So uh, we love the idea of, of using volume four to really... Uh, hone in on that theme and and take it from a more I, I would say this this volume really kind of takes a more personal uh, approach than maybe any of the other ones have more more intimate and and emotional and and I think it's it's really beautiful. Do you have a favorite of the subjects that you guys ended up selecting for this volume? Ooh, well, I'm a little biased towards Frida because that was one I suggested. So <laughs> she's also, as I discussed with Birdie, incredibly charming and appealing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm I'm trying to think through all of our topics, and I I think Frida might have to be my favorite because just she she's so multifaceted. You know, I mean she she's part of the resistance, and she you know did not conform to gender norms in a time where it would have been so much easier just to do so. And she's also this groundbreaking musician. Like she was, she was leading the way in a time that it was not easy to do so. And she did it with style and flair and a sense of humor and how many, what a hero. So yeah, I would say she's probably my favorite. Yeah. I actually feel like if you took away 
the war and all of the impact that had on her life and all of the amazing things she did with the Dutch resistance, she would still have a really heroic story. I know. <laughs> yeah, someone would still be featuring her superheroes of, you know, the 20th century or superheroes of music. Like, she's just a superhero, superheroes of the LGBTQ plus community. Like, she is just a superhero in so many different ways that it's it's awesome. That, that we get to feature her in this volume. I also think she would just be a superhero of style. She could, like, wear yeah. an outfit. Whether she, I've seen pictures of her in, like, full suits, but also in, like, gowns. Yeah. And gowns that she describes as very plain, but on her they look incredibly chic and beautiful. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I had seen her dress in, in more of a, of a manly style when I first read about her. So that was sort of like the imagery I had of her. And then I saw pictures of her in dress later on. And I'm like, girl, you rock this. She's just awesome. Yeah, she. Uh, I think it kind of emanates just from what a confident person she was. You know, anybody. Absolutely. Any, everybody looks better when they're confident. So uh, I think that was mm-hmm. her big thing. Well, and I love the idea of setting an example in a macro way. We're setting an example of heroes and chutzpah, but on the micro level too. I think lots of women could could do to to learn more confidence, and so on on just that level, she's a hero too. A hundred percent, Jackie. What is your like vision for the future of chutzpah? When you think about what comes in volume five or six or seven, which I know is hard because you're in crunch time on four, but do you think to the future and about what you might be able to do with this comic? Absolutely. So I know Marcel has got... I want to say nine volumes planned and he already knows what themes he wants to do for all of them. So in that respect, you know, he's already 10 steps ahead of me in terms of imagination. But uh, I definitely have a lot of, I would just love to see more communities implementing chutzpah into their, into their learning. Um, I love the idea of, we, we talk a lot about a chutzpah model and really building that out. Uh, so other communities have, the tools that they need to tell those stories in in a way that is more accessible to people, and I would I would just love for it to be recognized not just for its merit as a Holocaust education tool, but just as as a wonderful comic. I mean, Marcel's got award winning artists on this thing. Marcel himself is an impressive force, so it's I would love to see it get recognition in that respect too. So that's my vision. Our final interview is with Marcel Walker, who is in many ways the beating heart of this project. Uh, You heard Jackie essentially refer to him as just an idol of many kids (laughs) in the area. So his segment is going to be the longest of the three. The segment really traces the project's whole history from the very beginning, as well as Marcel's passion for the work that is blazingly apparent. First, will you, just to give us a little bit of context, talk about who you are and your work before you ever got to this comic? Because I know you're big into animation, very near and dear to my heart, uh, and you have worked on a lot of other art projects. So will you talk about those a little bit first? Sure, sure, absolutely. So uh, I'm, I, I've been making comics literally all my life. Uh, I knew when I was six that this was going to be my vocation. Uh, and looking back on it, it's it's a little strange because when you think about it, when we typically when people choose their their you know their careers, even if you choose a career in your your teens, your late teens, your early twenties, you know by the time you get into your your forties, you know you you you're following a path that was set on when you were younger, 
uh, you know, and often you haven't experienced much of life. And I often think about, wow, I chose this when I was six. Um, <laughs> but it was, I just knew that that was what I needed and wanted to do. Um, I always envisioned myself making mainstream comics. So Superman and Batman and, you know, Spider-Man, all those kinds of characters. I am very obsessive about Superman. Anybody who knows me will tell you that. <laughs> and so that's what I always figured I would be working on. But life will unfold the way that it unfolds. And so that didn't quite happen. Even though I did, I was always drawing. I was always making comics, and that was always my my goal. Uh, but however, you know, I started teaching comics illustration and uh, comics classes and workshops when I was in my early to mid-20s, so this would have been the early mid-90s. Uh, I did that for a number of years, and that's where I learned a lot. Uh, and that's where my path kind of started to change a little bit. Uh, I was working more on my own independent comics. I started working for other clients and things. I was doing a lot of illustration work, uh, and I had a day job to support a lot of that. Uh, and uh, some years later, so this would have been uh, the early 2000s, I also uh, started doing work with the Museum, which is the Museum of Comics and Cartoon Art uh, based here in Pittsburgh. So the founder of the Museum and I, we were friends. We had met uh, when I was working at the Pittsburgh Center of the Arts, teaching those workshops and classes. We stayed in touch. He uh, started up the Museum, and the Museum actually started uh, working with the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh on the initiative that became Hutzpow, I before I was involved, uh, I knew some of the participants that were on the initial committee. And this would have been late 2013, I believe, or, or 2013, 2014. So I was aware that this was happening. And my understanding is when the project began, uh, they even though they wanted to use comics and cartoon art towards the purpose of revisiting Holocaust education, revamping Holocaust education, uh, they had not quite come to the decision to make a comic itself formally, but when that decision was made, uh, the decision they decided to make a comic book and a companion traveling art exhibit. So the moment that was decided, I knew I was going to be involved with the project. And I always tell people that even if they had not tapped me to, to join them, I was going to be involved with that project one way or another. <laughs> um, and it just it just worked out. And so they did, in fact, reach out to me. So that uh, at that time, when we were working on the first issue, we didn't have we didn't have a template to go by. But we I think we just had a very strong idea of what it needed to become. My good, very good friend and the lead project writer, Wayne Wise, uh, he wrote all four of the stories that were featured in the first issue. Uh, and he, you know, and then they reached out to different artists to illustrate each of the stories. Uh, and I ended up illustrating the story that told the story of two survivors, uh, Mache Baran and Malka Baran, who met and got married after the Holocaust. That was, that was a transformative experience. Cause like I said, we didn't have a, we didn't have a template. We didn't have anything to go by, but we were able to really produce something strong. We hit the ground running. We talk about that a lot how uh, it holds up even when we look at it now. Like volume one did exactly what we wanted it to do. And uh, it also turned some people who had kind of questioned the project around and brought them to our side because even some of the survivors whose stories we told, and we featured the stories of survivors who settled here in Pittsburgh. Their, um, their stories really covered a breadth of experiences, you know, so we had people who had been in camps, we had people who had been partisan fighters, we had people who had been in the military, uh, the American military, and gone back. So it, it really covered a breadth of stories there. 
But some of the survivors we approached to get their permission or their families, they, they weren't quite as approving of the project initially because they didn't understand. There was that preconception about what comics were, right. what they could do uh, of them as, you know, as a, as a juvenile art form or a comedic art form. And uh, one of the other survivors who was profiled in that first issue, Fritz Ottenheimer, he was one of those. But when he saw the first issue, and we have a lovely photo of him from when he received the first issue, almost hot off the press, uh, he was instantly a supporter after that. And he gave us a lot of the language that we have used to describe the project since. So, and when, so when we were working on that first issue, I, I have to say, I just knew, I was one of, just the, uh, of a group of artists working on this anthology, but I had a very strong sense of how the project was going to evolve or needed to evolve. Uh, that's part of where the, the, the Hutzpah method and the Hutzpah aesthetic kind of comes from. Uh, I just, I could see more issues in the series and I started breaking down what I thought those issues needed to be, like what the focal, focus of each issue needed to become. And it's largely so far played out very close to that. Uh, our behind the scenes things have changed a good bit, both at the Holocaust Center and with the project and who's who's working on it. Uh, at, I now formally work for the Holocaust Center. So they created a position on staff for me to become its pal project coordinator. So that's been a blessing all the ways around. Uh, and that kind of brings us to where we're at now, where we're, you know, we're producing these various issues and we're also getting them into the hands of the people who are going to, they're going to, they're intended for, which is educators and students, but they're also created for general audiences. So anybody who picks up a copy of any, any volume of Hutzpah should get something out of it. You mentioned that you are the project coordinator on this. You're also the lead project artist, a writer, a letterer. Is it tricky to be doing the artistic part of it and then have to shift gears and do more of the administrative part of it? It can be. (laughs) At times it can be. But at the same time, it affords me insight into the creative process. Uh, When we were working on the first two issues, so uh, this is with the original editor, Zach Zaffris. Um, when that was, I, I worked very closely with him, which is what allowed me to eventually transition into this role. He was actually an advocate for me transitioning into this role, and the project wouldn't have become what it became without him. So I just gotta, you know, give him mad shoutouts because he was great. But we worked so closely because uh, because it was easy for me to kind of anticipate the needs of the writers and the artists involved uh, because that's what I do. And so as we've been working on the project, likewise, it's been. I think it's that's made it a lot easier for us to get the best work that we have out of all the creators involved. Uh, because I know, I know what it's like to have all this, uh, the, the strictures and the things that the creators have. And, you know, and I, there's times I've been able to see where things can be improved, but not never in a, in a, it's always in a, in a positive way. And, uh, and it's, and it's worked out well. So, but it can, there, there, there are times <laughs> where it's, you know, I have to actively kind of, Thing. All right, so I'm I'm now in this mode. I'm now in project coordinator mode, or now I'm in a more uh, creative mode. But on the whole, they go hand in hand. And and the staff here at the Holocaust Center is super supportive and understanding of the need for me to switch gears. Which if if they weren't, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Right. This is obviously a really important project, and it is in my mind worthy of a huge distribution platform, but it's at its heart, it's an independent comic. I mean, I I know people that 
make comics and work for the big companies, and they have their own challenges keeping stuff on track. And it feels like as things get smaller in terms of the production, those problems actually get bigger. So what are the challenges for you that come with being uh, an independent art house, essentially? Well, I think the same. It's They're similar to other independent comics, you know, just reaching an audience and getting getting the word out there that you exist and, and building on that. But, you know, ours are also very, there's some things that are specific to Hootspow because we, we are producing this book with uh, dual audiences in mind and, you know, with, with educators in mind. Uh, I say that because, you know, when, when we tell people what we do, especially working with educators, there are, uh, there's, there's three notable texts that are used in, in these kinds of studies. Uh, Night by Elie Wiesel, mm-hmm. The Diary of Anne Frank, and Mouse yep. by Art Spiegelman. So those, because those three come up all the time, especially that last one, because, you know, that being a, a, a graphic, I call it graphic prose work, but, you know, of, born from the comic book arts medium. So we get compared to that a lot. So there's there's the challenge of getting this into the hands specifically of educators and still overcoming the hurdle of it being a comic book. I mean, that's not as much of a challenge as I think it has been in the past, but I mean, it, it still, it does exist until people see it. I will say that anytime, as soon as people see it, they get it almost instantly. And that's yeah. true of kids, adults, you know, that cuts across. I, I mean, we've, we've had the fortune here to have presented Hook's Pal to so many different people from so many different backgrounds. Um, there was a wonderful experience I had uh, that was last year with a group of middle and high school students uh, at, at a local local boys and girls club. And, and these was predominantly black youth. And, you know, so I'm black and it was important for, it was important for them to see me in my role and working on this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at first I wasn't sure that I had connected with them, you know, because, you know, part of that was just because they were teenagers and you don't always right. know right away <laughs> if you connected with your audience. But shortly thereafter, uh, we, some of the members of our staff, we were at uh, an event out in the world and we were walking and a large group of those kids were there and they recognized me and they just, they called out my name and descended on me. And fortunately, uh, Zach, who I mentioned earlier, he took a picture then. So I have proof <laughs> that they were really excited to see me, but it was also validation that we had connected with yeah. what we did. And then we actually brought those kids into the Holocaust Center afterwards where they got to meet and listen to one of our survivors. And that was just lovely. Um, so I guess the, the bigger challenge with Hootspow as an independent publication is just make, making that happen again and again and again, right. you know, and, and making that reach as broad as possible. One thing that really stands out to me, looking at volumes one through three, and you sent me kindly a rough of some of the stuff that's in four, is how much effort you put in to accuracy in uh, representing places and spaces where these things happen. Like, I think I saw a note in some of the four that was like about making sure that the facade of a building like was was researched or something. Um what is that process like and how how do you get the right resources to have that information into the hands of the the artists that are cre- recreating these these worlds and how often do you kind of have to fudge things because you don't really have the the primary sources on it. Fidelity is something that from the outset we paid a lot of attention to. 
uh, with this project, and that that's going that's ongoing, uh, and that's true of both the written component and the visual component. Uh, it, it varies on a case by case basis because with certain stories there's there's more reference material. Uh, with others, you know, when there's less, that we rely more on the creators involved to come up with a reasonable presentation of what would have happened. Um, Fritz, Fritz Ottenheimer, who I mentioned earlier, he, he spoke about that, like the, the advantage of using the comic book medium to tell these stories, which is, you know, because you didn't have photographers or videographers or, you know, or filmographers available everywhere to document everything, you know, it was certainly a different world than we're living in now, you know, writers and artists, specifically comic book creators, they can use their imaginations and skill sets to fill in those gaps. So we have done that from time to time, but we usually, you know, it has to be done with the right kind of sensibility to it. You know, for instance, I've, there've been instances where I've had to uh, reverse engineer what somebody may have looked like when they were young. Right. That's tricky. Um, but it, you know, I just, so on the cover of uh, our first issue, uh, one of our survivors depicted Dora Eiler, who was very well known in our local community. We had to do that. Like I had to, I had to basically reverse engineer how I thought she would have looked as a young lady when her story took place. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't have much reference to go by. Most of them was her older. Uh, just a week ago, I came across a photo here in our archives at the Holocaust Center that just, it, it was a photo that wasn't available at the time. And I just wanted to kick something because I thought, oh, this would have been great to have had. But at the same time, it was like, I thought, oh, and there was a number of photos of our survivors when they were young that was, you know, it, it, it's humbling to think of them because these are all real people. You know, we're not making any of this up. So that is a very, uh, and that keeps us grounded. But what I was glad about was, I got pretty close. I think I got about <laughs> about as close as I'd have been able to, you know, like it, you could still tell that was her. Right. So, you know, we do the best we can. And that's why it's also a group process too. You know, all the stories have to be vetted by our team. Um, and if there's a question, you know, we're, we, we encourage the question to be raised. Like we always want to make sure that it's as close to, you know, accuracy, that with the accuracy is as high as possible. Uh, you mentioned this all being part of a team, and I'm wondering, is there a quick and dirty version of, like, what is the the actual process like from the moment where you say, yes, we're featuring Frida Belenfante to here's the printed comic? Is there a quick and dirty version of that? Okay, so the quick and dirty version would be, well, first we select all the subjects. We like to kind of know who all is going to be included in each issue, because that gives us a sense of what the balance of the, you know, the content is going to be. Once we've done that, then the next part is finding the right creative team or individual. Sometimes it's one person, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three, but you, we want to, you know, make sure that we have the right person working on that right story. And while we do typically like to call our talent here locally, because it's just easier to work with people that you have here on hand, we, we reach outside of the region on a couple of occasions, but it's always about finding, pairing the right talent with the right story. And sometimes even after the fact, like you have to replace people that has happened. Right. Uh, but I have found up to right now, it, it almost always works out the way it's supposed to work out. Uh, when the emphasis is on telling the story correctly, you, you end up with the people involved with the talent involved that you're supposed to have. So, 
uh, it's really just about keeping the lines of communication open. That's the part that assures that you're going to end up with the best product. So how much back and forth is there? So is it pretty much that the writer comes in with their script, the artist does their thing, everything gets approved, it goes to print? How many revisions do you typically do? Like where in that in that line of, of process do things shift around? Where do they get a little amoeba-like? It can It can vary from story to story, but typically we contact the writers first. And although ideally we like to know who the teams are going to be, but we contact the writers first. Uh, and once they've, you know, they've been briefed on, you know, the history and, you know, a lot, you know, very often they do a lot of independent research. If there's a specific aspect of the story we'd like to focus on, we have some discussion about that. But, you know, we get, once we get a first draft in, you know, I review it first and the team reviews it. We compile the notes, try to get those back to the writers. And so there can be some back and forth, but usually, I mean, usually we're able to get it within a couple of drafts. It's usually not a belabored process because, our, our talent pool is really super strong. And then it's more or less the same thing with the artists. Uh, with, by the time the artist gets the scripts and, you know, they get the go ahead. It's usually a little, I guess, more straightforward with them because they've got something to actually go from. Right. Uh, but that presents, that can present its own challenges as well. Like you can read a script and, and kind of have the whole thing. But once you get that art back, there might be other issues that you have to iron out, but usually you're able to, you know, we're able to get that taken care of within a draft or two. We always have the artists do uh, send us their preliminary layouts because the idea is we'd want them to have to redraw as little as possible. So mm-hmm. they'll just send us layout pencil artwork, uh, or if they work digitally, just their roughs. Uh, and then, you know, once we've got it clear enough where we can understand that often now we drop in, well, I'll drop in lettering on top of the roughs just to see how it flows and looks and everything. Uh, once that gets approved, you know, they're they're given the go-ahead as well. There can be changes up to the last minute. I will say that because in, in Volume 3, we had we had some changes. And usually at that point, it's mostly text, but until we submitted it to the printer. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a process from beginning to end. But, you know, it, at this point, we do kind of have a method with it. So it's not too too bad. Um, I know your method has been refined as you've gone on. And now, as you said, you have a pretty strong process in place. And I I know you also mentioned that you have on occasion found resource images you wish you had earlier. But now that you are several years into this project and uh, apparently looking, you know, all the way to volume nine and perhaps beyond, do you wish you had done anything different earlier on? I'm going to say no, because we needed to do what we did to get to where we're at right now. You know, I guess there's things that could have been tweaked or, or you know, people we could have approached that we didn't. I mean, you, know, you can always kind of second guess it after the fact. But honestly, we've done far more right with Hutzpow than we've been, you know, we've been missteps we've made. Many missteps have been very, very minor. And, you know, it's it's a continually evolving project. So, we get to keep refining it. It just, I somebody just asked me recently, like, what's your favorite? issue. And they just asked me this yesterday. And I always say, and it's the truth, it's always the issue that we're working on at that time, because it always, you can tell that's going to be the best issue ever. I love that answer. I'm just over here smiling. I don't know if you can hear it. Um, but <laughs> one thing I also wanted to ask you is how you select your superheroes for each volume. Well, as Jackie explained, there's a theme involved with every issue, you know, and that works into our also larger programming here at the Holocaust Center. But, you know, we, we try to select, so for instance, we'll use volume four as an example. We try to select stories that really 
cover a breadth of the subject matter. Um, Hutzpah stories on average are about six pages long, so it doesn't give you much room to tell a person's life story or even sometimes just an instance in a person's life story. So it's all about the economy of the storytelling. So, you know, we have to kind of look at whose story can we tell in, in this abbreviated way and still manage to convey the essence of what makes this so important. And there's, there's other, there's, there's a number of factors that can result in why we do choose one story over another. Some can be just access to information and what we're able to verify. Um, if, if it's subject to people, we know like our local folks, you know, we like to get people's blessings where possible. Uh, volume four, these, it, this is telling stories of people who are more publicly known. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that same kind of constraint, but, you know, we, we, we look at that balance, I guess, more than anything else. And, you know, if there's two people who have more or less the same kind of a story, same sort of background, but one, their experience is a, is a little stronger or it's more, it's easier to, to capture, you know, then that becomes a story that we would probably go with. And it just has to kind of feel right. And that's a, an organic process, you know, but it's also, it's a democratic process, you know, like I, I know in, in the role that I'm in, if somebody came to me and would like a, they were just really strongly advocating for a particular story, uh, you know, I would listen to that. Uh, Jackie mentioned also, like she, she was advocating for Frida's story and she couldn't have been more right about that one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's, it's a process, but then by the time you come down to your final selection, five, six, people typically, you know, you like you're able to look at it and go, yep, that's our group. That's who we need to be telling these stories about. Since this has really become a big part of your life for a while now, um, what has been the biggest surprise along the way for you personally as being part of this project? How warmly it's been received. I knew this was something that was going to be received well, but it's, it's really, it means, it, it means a lot to people. We just had a group of uh, eighth graders in here yesterday and at one point I was talking to him about the project. I was talking about the first story I worked on and the moment it hit me that, you know, these are real people's lives that we were being entrusted with depicting. And I was looking right at them and I could see right in the middle of the group, there was a, a group of girls and like their faces just all changed all at once. And I looked like they were going to like cry just a little bit, like, but in the good way, yeah. like they get it. They get this. They, and, and the immediacy, I guess that they, appreciate this project. That's what grabs me. Uh, I, I, I was at Carlo College not long after we finished the second issue. I was invited in to talk to a group of students for their uh, arts and Holocaust studies class, and they had been assigned a number of works, including Mouse, uh, to read. And so they had read that, and they read Mouse. And they told me directly how they, they appreciated Mouse. And they liked it, but they loved Hood's Pow. And that really bowled me over, the fact that they loved Hood's Pal even over Mouse. And that's not to take anything away from Mouse, but I think they were just able to connect with these stories because, you know, we, we, we render these stories in a, um, in, a, in a short fashion, which, you know, you get a lot of information in a short space, but also uh, it's a very naturalistic depiction. You yeah. know, it's not stylized. And that, I think that, that accounted for at least some of that. Right. So that warm reception is the thing, I guess, that, that, that continues. That still surpri- that surprises me, but makes me very happy. Do you think about it in terms of being like your legacy in some ways? Sure. Sure. Uh, 
sure. Sure. If I if I, if I got abducted by a spaceship tomorrow, <laughs> which I don't want to happen, but you know, you just never know. But if if, if something like if like I just were not involved with Hutzpow, it's been the best experience I could have ever asked for. And it's it's provided platforms for me to do other things. It's it's just it's wonderful. Like when I tell people where I work and what I work on. It's amazing what their reactions are, even before they've seen it, just knowing what it is. It's a blessed project. So, you'd, and it's the kind of thing you don't encounter that often. Um, it's possible. I'm not going to say this for sure, but it's possible. I might be the only like working cartoonist in Pittsburgh who has like a day job making comics where like, you know, <laughs> benefits and stuff. And that's like, that's a, ble- I could have never imagined this would have been possible, Yeah. but I do want to see more of it happen because it, it, it's a thing that also affords a lot of opportunities for a lot of other creatives here in Pittsburgh. That makes me super happy being able to meet people like Bertie who just kind of came out of nowhere and, and knocked it out of the park right off the bat. I, where does that, where does that happen anywhere else? Right. Like, you know, I guess if you, if you're with a sports team or something, well, <laughs> but I'm not an athlete, I'm an artist. So this is, this is where I want to see it happen. That's so perfect. I want to point out for all, you know, that spaceship is taking you to a cartoon planet. I'm just saying, be open to these I ideas. Hope. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think about that when I was a kid. Right? Like if there's, if there's I, a heaven, I still it's, do. it's where all the comic stuff is for real. Right. <laughs> I feel like Bugs Bunny is there and uh, old school <laughs> Spider-Man is there for me. I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you understand. <laughs> I do. Uh, what do you hope that people take away from this comic when they read it? Well, I always want to, you know, I want, I want readers to always remember, you know, these are real people. And this, the story is going to be really exciting and moving and, and, and transformative. But these are real people. And that means that they are flawed. They're not perfect. Uh, in volume two, I wrote and drew the story of Arena Sendler, who was a Polish social worker who was part of a network that helped rescue approximately 2,500 children from the Warsaw Ghetto. And you know, in doing the research on her, she was not a perfect person by any means, but she was a very strong person. And, and there are certain corollaries I have with Arena and Frida in that the fiber of their character and the way they were able to do what they did. And, you know, and, and both of them, I feel like they did the perfect thing, like their lives are representative of the perfect response to what the Holocaust was, is they both lived really, really long productive lives. And, you know, so I, that's the kind of thing that I hope readers take away from Hutzpah. Um, these, these other messages and how, you know, fortitude and longevity, you know, that's what wins out in the end. Our deepest thanks to Bertie, Jackie, and Marcel for spending time talking with me and to the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh for even launching this amazing project. Uh, I'm so excited that they're looking for ways that they can help other communities develop similar projects. And we will link to the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh's website so you can get all the information on Hutzpah, including how to order. Yeah, they'll have lots of lots of fun links on the show page for this day. So uh, we hope that you will check those out. Uh, since this has been a lengthier episode, I was going to do kind of a shorter listener mail, but it's really fantastic. It is from our listener, Emmy, and she writes, Hey, Holly and Tracy, I am a huge fan of the podcast, and I'm a history major in college. 
Bravo, Emmy. Uh, when listening to your Maria Tallchief episode, you mentioned her last husband, Henry Buzz Passion Jr. from Chicago. And that name sounded familiar. Henry is a family name, and Passion was my mom's last name. So I asked my mom, and she confirmed that Maria Tallchief was my third cousin's wife. That's Grandpa's cousin's wife. I'm doing a family history paper on my mom's side for one of my history classes, and I'm totally going to use you guys as a source. I was unknowingly doing research while listening to your podcast, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, she writes, y'all are amazing, and I can't wait to keep listening. Emmy, that's so cool. Uh, she also wrote a PS that her mom met Maria and said that she was very nice, which doesn't surprise me. Um, <laughs> that is uh, such a fabulous and cool connection to history. We always talk about how what keeps us passionate about talking about history is that it is a living thing, and we are connected to it in ways we don't always realize. And this is a very direct connection. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, Emmy. If you would like to share your connections to history with us, you can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. That is a new address, so keep in mind. Uh, you can also find us everywhere on social media at Missed in History. And mistinhistory.com is also our website. If you would like to subscribe, that sounds like a fantastic idea. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. (laughs) 